und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hallo and greetings from City Breaks. Welcome to episode 9 of City Breaks Munich. We've spent two episodes covering the darkest times of Munich in the 20th century, the time under which Hitler affected everything. And before I move on from that period, I'd just like to do one more episode in which I give you a brief overview of some of the very brave Germans who tried to stand up to Hitler, tried to say this is all completely wrong, and of places in the city where you can find traces of these people even today. I think it's very easy to get bogged down in the Nazis and Hitler and what they did to us and the rest of Europe, but really we ought to pause a moment and think too about the many, many ordinary Germans forced to live out their lives in Munich and of course the rest of Germany in those days. What choices did they have? What was life like for them? There are certainly examples of famous people and presumably others who took one option, which was flight, go and live somewhere else. Most people, I guess, just tried to get on with it as best they could, maybe ignore the most awful things, try to live their lives anyway. And then the people who are going to be the focus of this episode are the few who actually said, right, enough, what can I do about this? I can't stay silent, I have to speak out. There are a number of them, one or two reasonably well known, some certainly not very well known at all, whom I'd like to talk about in this episode. But before we get to them, just a brief mention first of some of the people who took the first option I I outlined, namely leaving the country. Possibly one of the most famous of those um, who was connected to Munich was Albert Einstein, who was actually born in Ulm, that's a city in Baden-Württemberg, so not actually in Bavaria, but not too far away, but who spent his school years at the Luitpold Gymnasium, so the grammar school that was named after the Prince Regent Luitpold, in Munich. So very much had a connection with the city, although in fact when he got to university age, he moved to Zurich and studied there. As early as 1921, he gained the Nobel Prize for Physics, but by the 1930s, he had fled to America. Obviously, life for him as a Jew in Munich was going to be unbearable, not least personally, but also because he wouldn't be allowed to continue his profession. So he went to America and became a lecturer at the California Technical University, Caltech, as I believe it's known these days. That was actually in 1930. In 1933, he made an attempt to return to Germany for a visit. But while he was en route, he got news that the Nazis had actually trashed the house that he owned in Brandenburg, that's further up in northern Germany, and that he really was persona non grata, at which point he stopped, turned round, went back to America, and renounced his German citizenship forever. Very famous in literary circles is the author Thomas Mann, who was actually a North German originally, but who spent most of his writing years in the city of Munich, wrote many of his novels there. But by the 1930s, he had become a target He tried to speak out about Nazi policies and he began to get very threatening letters from Nazi sympathisers, many of whom were actually artists or other authors, but who had decided to support Hitler and his views. And they were against the fact that he chose to speak out. This all came to a head when he was on a lecture tour in 1933. He was in Switzerland and he suddenly decided that actually he wouldn't be returning to Germany, and he stayed in political exile in Zurich, not just for the remainder of the war, but actually right up until he died in 1955. He returned to Germany, including to Munich, just very occasionally to give a lecture, but really he'd left the city, where he could no longer tolerate the way things were going. 
Another very interesting author, not so well known, somebody called Oscar Maria Graf, who was a Munich author in the 1930s and who at the time of the book burning in 1933 was so horrified to find that the Nazis had burnt the books of many of the people he most admired, all the authors that they thought were degenerate, but in fact hadn't burnt his books felt obliged to denounce himself. He was so horrified that people might think that he was a sympathiser. He wrote a newspaper article in which he made the plea, burn me. He continued to speak out, made himself really very unpopular, and he too, by 1938, had left Munich and gone to America. And he also never returned to Germany, or not to live at least. And there will have been many other ordinary Jewish families who could see that things were going to get worse and worse for them and they too left, in many cases, to go to the States, in some cases to other European countries, including coming to Britain. So, moving on to the people who actually stood up and opposed um, I wanted to start with Georg Elsa. We have actually mentioned him already. He it was who, in 1939, tried to murder Hitler by placing a bomb in the Bürgerbräu Keller where Hitler was due to speak. And if you remember from a previous episode, that went wrong because Hitler left unexpectedly early and wasn't there when the bomb went off. But Georg Elsa gradually became under suspicion. He was eventually arrested and imprisoned. And they put him in prison to await a show trial. It was thought that they could make a big thing about this, have a massive trial and then execute him. And this would send a message to anybody else who might be thinking of doing the same thing. But in fact, at the point in the war when it began to become obvious that Hitler was going to be defeated, so after Stalingrad, Georg Elsa was transferred to the Dachau camp just outside Munich and he was executed. Another very brave man was the Munich journalist Fritz Gerlich. In the 1920s, he was editor-in-chief of a newspaper called the Münchner Neueste Nachrichten, so Munich's latest news, and he used that platform to oppose the ideas of the Nazis, particularly from the standpoint of somebody who was a strong Catholic. He argued that Christian values and Nazi values just had nothing in common. By 1930, he was still there in Munich. He'd moved to a different newspaper. He was editing the Catholic Weekly, something called Der Gerade Weg, which means the straight way. But in 1933, he too was arrested. He was imprisoned in the nearby Camp Dachau. And then during the purge known as the Night of the Long Knives, which took place on July the 2nd, 1934, when many of the people who had spoken out against Hitler were rounded up and in some cases murdered, That's the night when Fritz Gerlich lost his life. He was executed in Dachau. And there's today still a memorial plaque to Fritz Gerlich on the corner where he had originally been arrested. You can see it if you go to the point where Sendlingerstrasse meets the Fairbergraben. And uh, I find it quite interesting to note that this plaque was paid for by the Süddeutsche Zeitung. That's Southern German newspaper, the big newspaper really of Southern Germany, which took over from the Münchner Neueste Nachrichten, so the paper that Gerlich had edited. In 1945, it had a brand new start and became known as the Süddeutsche Zeitung. And one of the things they did was pay for this plaque for their previous editor as a memorial to the brave acts that he carried out. And then there are two men of the church who have remained well known ever since the war for their stand against Nazism. One of them was Alfred Delp, a Jesuit priest who became the rector of the St. George Church or the Kirche St. Georg in the city and used his pulpit as a place from which to preach against the Nazis and point out what was wrong with what they were doing. 
And then he expanded that, holding meetings for fellow resistance and generally collecting around him a group of like-minded people who all had a different vision for Germany, based not on Nazi principles but on Christian socialist ones. By 1943, he was really speaking out, calling for regime change. And in 1944, when there was another attempt on Hitler's life, the one by Graf von Stauffenberg, the Nazis made a renewed attack on people who spoke against them, and this included arresting Alfred Delp, throwing him into prison, where in 1945 he too was executed on a charge of high treason. There's a memorial to him outside the St. Georg Kirche, the St. George's Church in the city centre. And then perhaps slightly better known was Rupert Meyer, who had been a World War I chaplain, battlefield chaplain, and who had won the Iron Cross for his bravery, but who, as the 1920s progressed, began to feel very uneasy about what was happening to Germany and to speak out. There was an incident in 1923 when he went to the Bürgerbräu beer hall because he'd been asked to give a talk on the topic of can a Catholic be a national socialist? And as he arrived to speak, he was very warmly greeted by the audience and the very first thing he said was, quote, you have applauded me too soon because I will tell you clearly that a German Catholic can never be a national socialist. In the 1930s, he continued to speak out, culminating in the fact that in 1936 he was banned from the pulpit, although that didn't stop him speaking in other places, and so eventually he too was arrested and sent to Sachsenhausen. Eventually he was put under house arrest for the rest of the war, and he did survive the war, but early after it finished, he was back in Munich giving a sermon at his old church, the Michalskirche, and he had a fatal stroke which killed him, and it was always thought that really this was just the strain of the previous few years had finished him off. There's a memorial to him, quite a well-known one, in the Bürgersaalkirche. It's visited every day by quite a lot of people, and you can tell this because when you look at it, it's a bronze statue, and on his left-hand side, on his chest, so just where his heart would be, you'll see it's been worn smooth because visitors every day come and pause at his statue and stroke it to show their respect and their reverence for him and what he did. And you can see that quite clearly. It's really quite worn away. So he's perhaps the best remembered of the people that I've talked about so far. And in fact, when Pope John Paul II came to Munich in 1987, he held a mass at the Munich Olympic Stadium, during which he beatified Rupert Meyer and talked of him as being, quote, a priest of unwavering faith. But perhaps the best known of all the people who resisted was the White Rose Group, the Weisse Rosa, as it was called in German, a group of Munich medical students, and more mainly medic students, and one of their professors, in order to form some kind of what they called passiver Widerstand, so passive resistance to the Nazis and their ideas. In the end, they too were executed, and they were so young in their 20s that this really seemed to be an example of the Nazis at their very most shocking. So I'd like to tell their story in quite a bit more detail. There are memorials and an exhibition dedicated to them at Munich University, at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität, which is open to the public. And if you go to visit, as you walk in the main door, which you can quite easily do, it's not like going into a school or anything, there's a lot of public in and out, partly in fact to visit the exhibition. But as you go in through the main door, if you look down at the paving stones, you'll find a collection of what look like leaflets, but they're made of marble and they're set into the paving stones just as you go into the building. The reason being that 
the Weisse Rosa, the White Rose Group, had fought their campaign largely through the distribution of leaflets, and this is there in a memorial to them. So the group began with Hans Scholl, a medical student, who, together with his friends, other medical students, Christoph Probst and Alexander Schmorell and Willi Graf, and also his sister Sophie, who was a biology student, got together and really began to ask themselves, what can we do to try and stop this crazy madness? And what they came up with was the idea that they would write and print leaflets and distribute them. So the first leaflet they wrote, they made a 100 copies, I think on an old, um, what used to be called a bander machine, if anyone knows what that is, thing where you turn a handle and soggy paper comes out covered in purple ink. So they wrote their ideas up in that format and printed a hundred copies and then they got the Munich phone book out and took out a hundred addresses for influential people and posted each one of them a leaflet in secret, obviously, no names or anything. Then they began to get braver and they had a system of daubing slogans onto the walls of the city so they would actually go out at night. Obviously, if they were caught, that would be terrible, but they didn't seem to have thought too much about that and they would go out and spray paint slogans on the walls, massive letters which said things like Hitler, der Massenmörder, so Hitler, the mass murderer, or sometimes just the one single word, Freiheit, which means freedom. The opening wording in their first leaflet read as follows, quote, Nothing is so unworthy of a civilised nation than to allow itself to be governed without opposition by an irresponsible clique that has yielded to base instinct. And they went on to say, quote, We shall not be silent. We are your guilty conscience. The white rose will not leave you in peace. So they were pleading with people, really, to join them in opposing Hitler, to think what they thought and to just try and spread the word and build a movement that would be in opposition. Their second leaflet went out in July 1942, shortly after it was known that hundreds of thousands, it's believed 300,000 Polish Jews had been murdered, which they referred to as, quote, the most frightful crime against human dignity in the whole of history. And then they went on with this call to action, quote, It is the duty of every German to defy these beasts. By their third leaflet, a few weeks later, they were talking about the, quote, dictatorship of evil. They were emphasising the need for passive resistance. They never called for violence in any respect, but they wanted things like sabotage. If people could bring to a halt armament plants or the war industry, that would be a help. In the universities, people should be discussing what was going on and thinking what they could do about it. This should happen everywhere, in laboratories, in artistic institutions, in all the newspapers and publications. I think they really felt that if enough people could be persuaded to join them, somehow they would be able to put a stop to the terrible things that were going on. By their fifth leaflet, of which they printed its believed eight to 10,000 copies, they were writing, quote, Hitler is leading the German people into an abyss. Hitler cannot win the war, he can only prolong it. And they began posting out to a much wider community, so it's known that some of those leaflets went to Cologne and to Frankfurt and to Vienna. By January 1943, so shortly before they were arrested, it's known, for example, that Sophie went to Augsburg, a nearby city, one evening on the 25th of January, and under cover of darkness posted 250 letters to people there. Two days after that, on the 27th, she took six or 700 leaflets and put them in post boxes throughout the city of Stuttgart, working again alone and at night, so very brave. And then on the 18th of February 1943 came the day that was to be their undoing. So they decided 
that Hans and Sophie would take a suitcase full of leaflets to the university. This was their sixth leaflet. And the plan was that they would creep in when lectures were on, so hopefully the whole building would be silent, all the halls would be empty, and they would go round quickly on each floor and leave piles of leaflets for the students to find when they came out of their lectures. There's actually a film called Sophie Scholl die letzten Tage, so Sophie Scholl, The Last Days, which was made in the early 2000s, and which is quite easy to get hold of in Britain with English subtitles, and which plays out some of these scenes very realistically. So the leaflet dropping scene, for example, towards the beginning of the film, is actually carried out in the university hall itself, so with the central marble staircase that you'll see as soon as you walk in if you go to visit you can see the staircase and if you climb up that leads to a corridor leading all the way around the first floor and on the film you see them rushing around there dropping piles of leaflets and the scene of what happened next is played out in great detail and is what actually happened so they had a few spare leaflets once they'd been all the way around they went up to the top floor to leave more up there and just as they were thinking they really must get out because the lecture bell was going to go any minute and the place would be flooded and they risked being caught Sophie couldn't resist. She put one pile of leaflets onto the balustrade and pushed them over the edge so they all fluttered down into the centre of the hall. And unfortunately, that was the very moment when the caretaker came along and saw this and came rushing up the stairs to see who had done it. Of course, they tried to mingle with other students and get away, but unfortunately, he had seen them. The two of them were there with this empty suitcase. Later, when the Gestapo checked, of course, it turned out that the piles of leaflets fitted exactly into this suitcase. And they were arrested and sat down in the office of the director and the Gestapo were called and arrived in 30 minutes. All of this is also described in great detail in a book called Sophie Scholl by Frank McDonoghue. Here he is, for example, on what happened just in the few minutes after the Gestapo arrived. The Gestapo officer in charge was called Robert Moore, who was actually already working on the task of trying to find the leaders of the Weisser Rosa, the White Rose Group, and I think he knew as soon as he heard this that this may well be the people. So Frank McDonoghue writes the following, quote, Moore now decided they had to be arrested and taken away for further questioning. Hans suddenly realised he had Christoph Probst handwritten leaflet in his pocket. He started to panic. He took it out of his pocket and tried to rip it up into little bits under the chair he was sitting on while the backs of the Gestapo officers were turned. But he was spotted doing this by a Gestapo officer who quickly retrieved a major portion of the leaflet and also the ripped up section. So Hans and Sophie were taken to the Wittelsbach Palace, which was now the Gestapo headquarters, where a long interrogation began. This is also graphically played out in the film. For the film, for the script, they actually used, both from the interrogation at the palace and from the trial itself, verbatim scripts of what was said. So you can think when you're watching it that you really are hearing what was said back then in 1943. It's clear that both Hans and Sophie immediately accepted full responsibility and they refused point-blank to name anybody else. They both claimed to have been working with each other but with no one else and gave away no other names, although in fact there was too much other evidence and gradually the Gestapo pieced it together and did find the other members. They must surely have been terrified, but they were really very brave. So, for example, Sophie is known to have said, quote, I believe I have done my best for the nation. I do not regret my conduct. I wish to fully accept the consequences of my actions. 
And by that, I think she meant not just that she was glad she'd done it because somebody needed to, but also she accepted herself the consequences and certainly wasn't going to get anybody else into trouble. When she was asked to sign the indictment, she turned it over and wrote the word Freiheit, freedom, on it. A trial was held only four days later in the Justizpalast in Munich, presided over by one judge Roland Freisler, who later became notorious. By this stage, his role was as President of the People's Court. In the film, if you watch it, you'll see that he's played as a ranting, merciless madman. And people who witnessed the trial at the time and have seen the film agreed that really it was a very good representation. This was, in fact, what he was like. He would frame most of his questions so they could only be answered with yes or no and then get increasingly loud and furious if defendants tried to say anything else. He liked to start his questioning in a low, monotone voice and then gradually get louder and louder until he was roaring at the top of his voice. He would pronounce a death sentence and then pause and then shout off with his head as loudly as he could as if he was participating in some sort of macabre drama. But both Hans and Sophie spoke up very bravely. Sophie repeated her idea that she really thought she'd taken the only honourable course of action, and Hans uttered the words, quote, Today you will hang us, but soon you will be standing where I now stand. But they were both sentenced to death. They were marched out of the courtroom. There's a very poignant scene in the film, which did apparently actually happen, where Hans and Sophie's parents, who hadn't been allowed to sit through the trial, were allowed to visit them, and where their father says to them, You will go down in history, and I am proud of both of you. And Sophie's mother, understandably, terribly upset, utters the words, Sophie, wenn ich denke, dass du nie wieder durch unsere Tür kommst, when I think that you will never again come through our door. And they were guillotined that very afternoon. No appeal, no nothing. It's said that when Hans bent down over the guillotine, his very last words shouted out for everyone to hear were, Es lebt die Freiheit, long lived freedom. Sophie was 21, Hans two or three years older. If you go to the university today to visit the Gedenkstätte, the memorial, you'll see the leaflets set into the paving stones as you go in, and you'll see the staircase, which will be very familiar if you've seen the film. And there's a special little room if you turn to the left in the entrance, an exhibition room full of documents from the time, of photographs, and some realia, so things like the typewriter on which they actually typed their messages. And in fact, the university itself is set in Geschwister Schollplatz, so a square named after the brother and sister Hans und Sophie Scholl. And across the road is Professor Hubertplatz, named after a professor from the university, a philosophy professor, Professor Kurt Hubert, who had joined the group and acted in an advisory role. He too was executed. Elsewhere in Munich, you find a memorial to the Weisse Rosa, the White Rose Group, in the Hofgarten, the garden, the park just up by the residence, and you can visit the Justizpalast, where the courtroom in which the case was heard has been more or less preserved as it was, and where too you'll find an exhibition with photographs of all the accused and with documents from the trial. Although it's a dreadful story, it can be said that they have left a legacy. There are nearly 200 schools in Germany named after them, for example. And a few years ago, when there was a television poll run by one of the big channels for people to vote for who they regarded as the greatest Germans ever, Sophie Scholl came top of the women's poll. So she hasn't been forgotten. And actually, I was quite struck by the words of somebody who was working in one of the exhibitions when I went round. She said to me, 
they showed what Germans should have done in Hitler's time. It's quite uplifting to know some of their leaflets got into the hands of the Allies and they were dropped. Tens of thousands of their leaflets were dropped in bundles all over Germany by the Allied air forces, so the British and the Americans. So their message, which they tried so hard to get out, actually spread much further than perhaps they could have done themselves. And a year later, some of their leaflets had got as far as New York and there was a piece in the New York Times about them headed the young German martyrs, and which had the following words in it, quote, These Munich students rose gloriously, protesting in the name of principles which Hitler thought he had killed forever. In years to come, we too will honour them. And the same idea of their message living on is conveyed at the end of the film. So right at the end, after the trial, you get the execution scene, which is very swift and which culminates in just a plain black screen when the credits start to roll. And then after that, there's a blue sky full of fluffy clouds and pictures of leaflets just fluttering down to earth. A reminder that their message was dropped all over Germany by British and American pilots. So that brings to an end everything I wanted to say about reminders in today's Munich of the rise of Hitler and World War II. And in the next episode, I'm going to move on to something completely different going to consider the role of art in Munich. Munich is famous today as being the home of two or three large galleries, which we'll talk about, and which are a legacy of its role in the 19th and 20th century as a very central place in the art world, somewhere which at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, in fact, was deemed to be a rival for Paris. So many artists were there living and working there. So all of that to come in next week's episode, for which I hope you'll be able to join me. But for the moment, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening today. Vielen Dank. And wish you a cheery goodbye in German. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>